I'm Ben Horton. And I'm Agnes Frimston, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello, welcome back to another episode of Undercurrents, the Chatham House podcast. I'm joined down the line by Agnes Frimston, as ever. How are you? Hello, Ben Horton. I am okay. How are you? I'm very good. Yes, I'm very excited by our episode today. How are you feeling this week? You've, you've not been well? Yeah, I'm on the mend, I think. Yeah, been a bit poorly, but can't really complain. I think we're all just getting a bit fed up, aren't we? A little bit cabin cabin feverish. That's a bit cabin feverish, but my father sent me the most joyous thing. Honestly, listeners, if any of you want to hear it, please DM me <laughs> because I will send it to you. It's my father sent it to me. He's up in the Highlands in the Cairngorms in Scotland, and it's the dawn chorus from this morning. And oh, it's about six minutes, but it's glorious, isn't it, it's Ben? So beautiful. Yeah, it's, it's just, really cheering. So zen-like and calm. Listening to that. So, if anybody needs some Scottish Highland Dawn chorus, just shout and I'll forward it on to you. Or maybe we can release it. We can probably attach it, can't we, to this? I think we. Maybe can. we should put it at the end of the podcast. Yeah, actually, that's a, that's a lovely <laughs> idea. Send me the well, file. Yeah. We will do it. Have a listen to that at the end of at the end of the podcast. And yeah, um, if you need it, there's a bit of Dawn chorus at the end. Um, a bit of Mother Nature giving exactly. back, which is lovely. But who, but who did you speak to this week, Ben? So this week we are taking a bit of a look at coronavirus, obviously. And although we've been trying to think about it from all sorts of different angles, this week we thought we would look at it more from the global health perspective. And I spoke to Charles Clift from the Global Health Programme, who has been thinking about the role of the World Health Organization during this crisis, and particularly their announcement or their decision to announce that coronavirus was a pandemic, which mm-hmm. has all sorts of policy implications when they make these announcements that they say, okay, now we're moving from something being a public health emergency of international concern to a pandemic, and states are in some way expected to adapt their behaviour. These terms have specific meanings. And so we talked about what factors influence those decisions and Uh what the impact of doing that has been and generally how the WHO has been dealing with the emergency so far. That sounds really interesting. Yeah, because of course you hear the word pandemic, don't you? And you think, oh, is that just a a level of threat or something? I don't know. Yeah. How is something deemed a pandemic? What does it actually mean? That's so interesting. And and it is interesting because you've got the different sorts of associations, I think. When you hear something like public health emergency of international concern, that's quite a technical, Mm. like legal, almost kind of wonkish phrase. When you hear pandemic, you think apocalyptic horror movie oh my goodness what's going on and there's a lot more kind of emotion and valency attached to that partially must be useful in that it inspires a certain response in the general public doesn't it exactly and so yeah touch on that in the interview but agnes that's so interesting well this week i was lucky enough to speak to dr max frass who is many things he is friend of the podcast the Eurasia Democratic Security Network Fellow at the Centre for Social Studies in Tbilisi, mm-hmm. which is a mouthful. He's a friend of Chatham House. He's a facilitator for the Common Futures Conversations Project. He works with Ben on that. And more than anything, he loves Georgia. He loves talking about Georgia. So <laughs> he came on to talk to me about Saakashvili and transnational politicians in Eastern Europe, really, 
How is it that Saakashvili was former president of Georgia, now big in Ukrainian politics, you know, this sort of zigzagging back and forth and what Ukrainian and Georgian relations are like? Um, and a bit about Georgia as a background, because I'm sure, shamefully, many of us, myself included, don't know enough about Georgia. So he filled us in on that. And this is going to be an emotional listen for me because I have a holiday booked to Georgia for July this year, which is looking teetering on the brink of unlikely. Oh, Ben, um, I'm so sorry. When are you supposed to be going? <laughs> 22nd of July, my birthday. Your my birthday, birthday which is also the day before my birthday, listeners, just in case anybody wants wants to give Undercurrents joint birthday party. So this is, this is our consolation prize that we can talk about Georgia on the pod. Luckily, Georgia will be there when we come out of this. So you can always go to Georgia again. Brill, well, should we have a listen? Let's have a listen. Now I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Charles Clift. Charles is a senior consulting fellow in the Global Health Programme here at Chatham House. And he's been very vocal throughout the whole of the uh, entirety of the crisis, as, along with the rest of our Global Health Programme colleagues. And his recent expert comment on the Chatham House website is titled Coronavirus, Public Health Emergency or Pandemic? Does Timing Matter? Charles, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. I thought we should begin just by talking a little bit about the World Health Organization. So your expert comment looks at the timing of announcements by the World Health Organization around when COVID-19 was determined to be a pandemic and when it was seen to be a public health emergency. Yes. Before we go into those kind of linguistic differences, I just wondered if you could give us the basics of how the World Health Organization is structured and where it gets its authority from to be making these pronouncements? So the WHO is a UN specialised agency. So it has 194 member states, almost mm-hmm. all the countries in the world. And its overall mandate is to improve health throughout the globe, mental and physical And so it has a very wide range of responsibilities covering not just infectious disease, but non-communicable disease. It has six regional offices and it has about 150 country offices. So it's a very large organization. And it has a specific responsibility, which we'll no doubt talk about, for dealing with emergencies arising from disease outbreaks particularly novel diseases. What power or resources does it have to act as an organisation in these emergencies? What is its role intended to be? Well, there's a a bit of an international agreement called the International Health Regulations, which were agreed by WHO member states in 2005. So that governs what member states should do and what WHO's role is Mm. in an emergency of the kind we're currently facing. So it specified that countries should build their capacity to deal with outbreaks such as this in terms of their health systems and their detection and surveillance and so on. And for WHO, it provides a framework for declaring a public health emergency of international concern, the PHEIC which is commonly called fake, which is not entirely appropriate, but um, (laughs) it's easier to say than P-H-E-I-C. What sort of action 
is triggered by a PHEIC? When a pandemic is declared, then the temporary committee issues a series of recommendations to WHO, to the affected country, about what they should now do. So if you look at the announcement on January the 30th, you'll see a whole a, a series of things called temporary recommendations, which are the sort of things you're familiar with. You must detect cases, et cetera, et cetera. It also recommends at the same time you should not impose travel and trade restrictions, or there's mm. no justification for doing it at this time. At which point, that is one thing countries, of course, did do is impose travel restrictions. But they didn't do the other, and many countries did not do the other things which you're familiar with. So there is a procedure. Countries have to report when they have an outbreak of the kind that we're currently experiencing. So if it has a serious public health impact, if it's unusual or unexpected, if there's a risk of international spread and a risk of restrictions to trade or travel, then it should notify WHO that it's got this outbreak. So that is what China did at the end of December last year with COVID-19, as it's now called. Then the Director General has, he has to constitute an emergency committee, which is representatives from all the major WHO regions. And he takes advice from that committee as to whether or not he should declare a public health emergency of international concern based on the criteria of the sort I read out in the international health regulations. What is the difference then between a public health emergency of international concern and a pandemic? At what point do we begin to see the distinction? Uh, That's a very good question. I started to think about this because when I was talking to a journalist, he said, okay, so when the public health emergency of international concern was announced at the end of January, he said, oh, well, we didn't really worry about it because at least it's not a pandemic. So I thought, well, that's quite interesting, isn't it? So then when I looked at it, you know, you saw that immediately when they did finally announce it as a pandemic, a lot of countries took action in terms of the things we're now familiar with, lockdowns and so on and so forth. So the question is whether you can attribute that to the announcement or whether governments at that time could see all around them evidence of the spread of the disease. And they had seen Italy in lockdown before WHO made the pandemic announcement. So all those factors might have been instrumental in causing governments to take action. But my question was, and you can't prove it or disprove it, if WHO had done it, say, two or three weeks earlier, would it have made a difference in the way countries approached it and the urgency with which they approached it? Because one of WHO's concerns, which Dr. Tedros, the Director General, expressed at the time, was countries aren't taking enough action in terms of either testing and tracing, isolating and all these things, or in terms of enhancing their health system capacity or in making sure they've got enough PPE sort of thing we talk about a lot in the UK. And so their concern was, I think, people said, why did you announce it so late? It was obvious it was spreading all over the world. So WHO's argument was, we felt, because the pandemic has a kind of emotive content, so I think they felt if you say pandemic, people 
instinctively think, oh, well, it's like Spanish flu. There's nothing we can do about it. It's just going to kill loads of people. And we can't do anything about it. But WHO's point was, you can still do something about it if you do the testing, tracing, etc., and you take social distancing, all these things. And, you know, a lockdown is just an extreme form of social distancing. So that, that was the thesis, whether it can be proved or not, I don't know. But, but I think it's certainly that the PHEIC doesn't really resonate with the public. Maybe it doesn't also resonate with governments who should know what it means. But the pandemic word has a kind of impact that, you know, it's, it's all psychology. But maybe, maybe if you reframe the PHEIC and called it something else, not necessarily a pandemic, but I think it, it might have more effect. It feels almost like this is a question of trusting the public to understand the significance of something. And it, from what you're saying, it sounds like the decision not to say this is a pandemic now was partly due to a concern around sort of mass panic that it would induce but do you think yeah. that actually sometimes in these emergencies, not panic is useful, but a, a serious understanding of the threat that's being yeah. faced is something that needs to be communicated very mm. early? Yeah, and somehow the PHEIC doesn't seem to do that very effectively. It was announced several times before, I think six times in all since 2005. And first time they did it was with the H1N1 flu in 2009. Mm. I don't know if you remember that. So they, in April, they issued a PHEIC. In June, they called it a pandemic. By August, it had kind of nearly fizzled out, and so they had to rescind it. Right. So then they were accused of overreacting to this influenza outbreak. So then when they came to the Ebola crisis in 2014, there was, a very, there was about five months from the outbreak becoming known about to when they declared it a pandemic. So then they were criticized for doing it too late. (laughs) (laughs) And they've been criticized, of course, this time by some people for doing it too late. Although, you know, compared to Ebola, it's very quick. So there is this question of timing of any announcement, whatever it is. I was just wondering whether we could say a little bit about how you think that process could be improved then? When you say that what we need to do is make public health emergencies of international concern a more meaningful term, improve understanding of what the implications of that are, how do you think that could be done in the future? Whether part of the reason you might delay declaring one is because you don't want to upset the country that's got the outbreak because it might bring in its train, although you don't want it, travel and trade restrictions. So it's harmful economically. It may harm the conveying technical medical assistance, medical supplies, if there are travel restrictions. So that might be a, you know, a disincentive for countries to declare it. And it makes WHO nervous about declaring it because of all these economic and other implications. So there's been a lot of discussion about whether you should have some sort of intermediate thing, not so um, there'd be an intermediate level between doing nothing and having a full-grown PHEIC so that people are not so frightened by the possible implications of going to a public health emergency in one go. And there are other aspects of the international health regulations that probably will need to be reviewed when this is over. So well, what you call a PHEIC or whether you change the way it operates would be a matter for discussion 
between governments mm -hmm. after we get to the end of this, if we do. I suppose one question that I wanted to come to as well, I, I know we have to be careful around the politics of raising whether the lockdown has been a sort of necessary step or anything, but I wondered if we could talk a bit about whether you think the lockdown is, or, or rather lockdown measures, are kind of inevitable when it gets to the point of declaring a pandemic? Is that something that we should just equate in our minds well, um, in future? <laughs> I'm slightly nervous about answering that question because I'm not at all a medical person. Mm, mm. I'm a doctor of economics, not medicine. But I mean, my opinion is, you know, a lockdown is an extreme form of social distancing. So I think most countries have introduced social distancing in some way or another, and the lockdowns vary in their severity. So you go from Sweden, which hasn't really had a lockdown, but has certainly had social distancing and other measures, to extreme cases where, you know, you're not allowed out of the house. And, you know, the UK is somewhere in between those. But I think you only one only did that because one had no other option. You didn't have a vaccine. You didn't probably, in many cases, do enough testing to isolate and then bear down on the disease in that way. You were worried about your health service capacity to cope with a flood of new casualties, which is why so many countries did it. You had very few options other than drastic social distancing, which is the lockdown. But, I mean, ideally, you would have done things in a way that you avoided it. Clearly, that's that's true. But as WHO said, many countries were not adequately prepared and therefore had few options. I wonder whether, as you say, there's been a lot of talk about the preparedness of states for these yeah. sorts of emergencies. And in order to be prepared, presumably you have to invest quite heavily in potential longer longer term kind of longer distance events and you have to be you have to have some sort of measure of resilience in your economy yeah. to deal with that but i just wondered whether you had a perspective on whether this experience is going to mean that policymakers are more willing to do that or do you think that they're going to be stuck in this kind of cycle of having of not wanting to invest too much in things that might not happen you know historically preparedness is underinvested in but I, I think the, the main thing I worry about as an economist is whether we're going to have you know years of economic depression the whole global economy will be disrupted what that will do for people's health irrespective of whether we get rid of the virus and for their livelihoods is the thing that looms biggest in my mind you know, and the lockdown is horrendously expensive, as you know. So government debt will go sky high. And how are we going to, you know, the future is very uncertain and slightly worrying. Very worrying. I feel like we need to find a way to end on a vaguely positive note, but I'm not sure how we do. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. It's uh, a little bit tricky. Um, do you think that there are things that we can learn from states that are coming out of this relatively well? Do you think there's a great degree of chance to this or do you think it really is the states that put the effort into being proactive at the start of this that are coming out better? Well, definitely. I mean, it, it, the, the ones that have done best in Asia are ones that not only experienced SARS in 2003, but another thing that's not very well known, uh, MERS, 
more recently, mm. uh, another SARS-type virus. And so they they were recent, you know, recently sensitized to how they could deal with it. So that's why Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, Hong Kong, and China seem to do a good job, which is a controversial thing to say in the case of China. But uh, I think in European countries, you know, even after the PHEIC was declared at the end of January, I think the general feeling in February in the UK, for instance, was, and I think they said, you know, the risk is low, and then it went to moderate. So although PHEIC had been declared, they still didn't think the risk to UK as a country was very high, which turned out to be a mistake. But, um, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing. That's another reason to look at, you can't make countries do things, but you can find the best way to motivate them within one's capability. And maybe there's a better way to do it than the PHEIC. And just finally then, I wonder, there's a lot of talk in the media from all sorts of different political persuasions around whether or not the WHO has handled this well, whether or not individual governments have handled this well. I just wonder whether you think that people have unrealistic expectations for international organisations like the WHO. Well, yeah, I I do. Um, I mean, I, I think the WHO, compared to what it did with the Ebola crisis, which I'm familiar with, you know, has performed exceptionally well in most respects. But I'm sure it could have done things better, but it is only a body that is there to give guidance to countries more generally. Mm-hmm. And it's always countries that can, only countries that can take the necessary action domestically. So I think, you know, the, the burden of responsibility lies with countries. Mm-hmm. And WHO to my mind, has given the best advice it can to countries based on the evidence we have about the virus and dealing with epidemics more generally. But in the end, governments have to act on it, and they've done it to varying extents. And the effects are still playing out as we speak. Charles Cliff, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. talking to Dr. Max Rass, who is the Eurasia Democratic Security Network Fellow at the Centre for Social Studies, Tbilisi, a friend of Chatham House, and a facilitator of the Common Futures Conversations Project, and based in London. Hello, Max. Hello, Agnes. How are you? Good, thank you. How are you? Not bad, thank you. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us. So, we have appallingly neglected Georgia on this podcast, but... Saakashvili has done some quite interesting stuff in Ukraine recently. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about who Saakashvili is and like where he came from? So who is Saakashvili? Well, I mean, if you look at the basic biographic details, he's an ex-president who was first elected as president of Georgia in 2003 at the tender age of 36 and, and having spent almost 10 years in that position. He quit Georgia immediately after quitting the, the post and moved to Ukraine. But before we moved there, what he did in, in, in Georgia was nothing short of remarkable. In many ways, he put Georgia on the map. I know that Georgia might not be as, as important and as much of a brand for people outside the world of uh, 
Eastern Europe studies and, and South Caucasus, but if you look at places already occupied in, in global media and, and, and discourse, before 2003, there wasn't much about this other than state of lawless, lawlessness and corruption and poverty that prevailed. And what happened since then, it's quite remarkable in a way that Georgia has become a success story in, in many ways. Now, not everybody will agree, and this success does not really concern everybody in Georgia. But over those 10 years, Georgia has turned from a de facto failed state where corruption and crime and nepotism and were rampant to a relatively modern um, Eastern European or South Caucasus state with some of the lowest crime rates in Europe, very decent record of, of public safety. Its GDP has nearly quadrupled, its public or state budget has tripled, its uh, rankings from corruption through ease of business uh, improved immensely. This was one model of growth. It, it did not really benefit everybody. So the scale of social exclusion and poverty and unemployment has remained. But on many, many indicators, Georgia has gone a very long way in a very, very short time. And here you have to put it in the context of Eastern Europe, as many parts of the world and probably a lot of people in the in the policy establishment has, has quite, Eastern Europe has quite a preoccupation with reform. And obviously reform can be measured and framed in different ways. But Georgia has become a poster boy for, for successful reform back then. It was nominated by the UN and various international bodies as the most successful reformer in pretty much every area, again, from crime, corruption, economy, uh, social matters, uh, even foreign policy. So it was it was a success story. And in the regional context, it's gone a very long way because, well, now we're talking about Ukraine, but if you talk about any post-Soviet state, maybe with the slight exception of Russia, everybody wants reform, everybody wants progress and, and, and rapid modernization. And Georgia was seen by many back in the day and, and by some still today, as an example of immense success in reforming and, and modernizing states from a very, very dire, I mean, in post-Soviet studies terms, 1990s state of lawlessness, corruption and, and, and despair into a functioning market economy. So when Zakashvili came in, who did he replace? Yeah, so Georgia was run by its, well, it's a, it's a, it's a classic post-Soviet story. It was run by Edward Shevardnadze, who used to be the Soviet Minister of Foreign Affairs and then after, well, a few years of, of rule by, by another local politician, he came to power in the early 90s and stayed in power for a decade as a stabilizing force. And he managed to give Georgia a sense of stability in, in the very basic military and, and public safety sense. So Georgia had, has gone through a period of, of civil war in the early 90s and, and ethnic conflict and political conflict, including with, with Abkhazia and South Ossetia, two breakaway provinces that are now recognized and occupied by, by Russia. So Shevardnadze was, was the man of the day back back in the day. He managed to give Georgia a sense of stability, but did not give it a functioning state. So as I said, until 2003, Georgia suffered electricity shortages, resource shortages, food shortages, even on, on, a, on a regular basis. And this is one of the reasons why the Rose Revolution, which brought um, Saakashvili to power, was such a powerful force. Georgians were just very, very tired of what was happening in the country, or as you what was not happening for, for years. And Saakashvili was first elected with, if I'm not mistaken, around 96% of the vote. So he was terribly successful. Just for our listeners who aren't as well versed in Eastern European history as you are, how big is Georgia, say, compared to Poland? What's the scale of population? What, what are we talking about as a sort of nation before we go on to what, what he managed to achieve? I think we're talking about the size of Wales, maybe. I don't know whether you consider it large or small, but that's, that's you know, 70,000 square kilometres. So it's, a, by European standards, mid-sized, small 
small country. Mm-hmm. We're talking about a population of, well, about 5 million during the Soviet times. Now, Georgia's population today is, is a bit of a riddle and also a politically explosive um, issue, but you, you're probably talking about 4 million, so not a very big population, um, nearly half of whom live in the capital of Tbilisi. Saakashvili came to power, yes, as you said, through the Rose Revolution. What was it? Yeah. Well, it, it was, a, I mean, initially a wave of popular protest against the corrupt government and potentially rigged election that was supposed to bring uh, Shevardnadze and his party back into power in 2003 and continue their rule. This was very unsuccessful. Now, what exactly happened is still a matter of some debate and investigation. There's a lot of people out there who would say that Georgia's Western partners, including the US and, and its European partners, were instrumental in in uh, making the revolution a success. Um, there are a lot of people in, in political science and sociologists who would say this was a genuine home homegrown and a grassroots movement by which civil society, especially youth groups and students, have come out on the streets en masse with their red roses. It was called the Red Revolution because the red roses were the symbol of of protest and stayed on the streets for weeks and weeks until the rigged elections were cancelled. A new election was was called and Sarkozy swiftly won that and there was a parliamentary election that followed and and resulted in a parliamentary majority for Sarkozy's party, the United National Movement, and for him him being elected president with the with a near total uh, majority of over 90%. So when he came in, he was a real sort of beacon of hope, basically. He he absolutely was. Yeah, I think very few very few people would question his, his record record of his early years and his his immense popularity back in the day. He was, I mean, he was seen as as a, as a miracle maker nearly in those very early years of, of Georgian Revolution for a number of reasons. I mean, economically, as I mentioned, unemployment, poverty, uh, corruption, and crime were rife. Uh, structures of the state were not uh, not really functional. It was an unusual case in, in, in a way that the government was not particularly authoritarian. It was just mostly lawless and corrupt. So Georgia was in many ways fairly democratic back then because the government was not particularly interested in cracking down on opposition and dissent, but it was also not interested in giving up power. So Georgia was just happily drifting away in this in this state until Rose Revolution came in and the new government took it on, on a, well, you can say pro-Western or Euro-Atlantic course and, and, and the course of neoliberal reform, because that's what that was the vision that these people had back in the day. So he was then in power for 10 years. And as you said, he achieved a huge amount. Two questions on that. How yeah. popular was he when he was in power? And secondly... Was it his reforms particularly that changed like the economic or social structures of Georgia? Or was it potentially just not being in the Soviet bloc anymore? Okay, so there's a couple of questions in here. One is whether he was popular, and I think especially in the first term of his presidency, so 2003 to 2007, he was immensely popular. It, things got a little trickier, but let's get there when we talk about the entirety of his of his uh, ten years in, in almost ten years in, in power. He was immensely popular, and so were his reforms. And I would argue that by many measures, the reforms were immensely popular. And some of the most praised, including in today's Ukraine, were, for example, the uh, the security sector and the police reforms. So what happened in Georgia is that they basically fired their entire police force overnight and started rehiring everybody, making sure that they are not corrupt and that the procedures are in place to make sure that the police does not take bribes. Because back in 2003, 
corruption and bribe-taking were Georgian's everyday reality. You could hardly leave your flat without giving uh, a bribe to whether it was your electricity provider, the uh, traffic cop uh, down the road, or um, your teacher, or your uh, lecturer at the university, or a doctor, or um, ticket inspector on the bus. It was everywhere. So what they did pretty successfully, and Georgia has jumped from... I imagine somewhere in the middle of the second 200, second hundred of, of global rankings of corruption, all the way to EU levels, which are not always great, but but actually on many on many corruption anti-corruption rankings today, Georgia ranks higher than Greece, Italy, or Bulgaria, or even Poland in some respects. It was a very radical approach. So it was this cliff edge approach of of hiring, and, and I mean, first of all, demolishing old structures and putting new structures in place in a very rapid and not sometimes very lawful manner, but there was so much popular support for this. Firing the entire police force over a couple of weeks was not an issue for anybody. Maybe even the said police force themselves, because they knew that they were not doing a good job and they enjoyed very little popular support. So by putting those new structures in place, he both ensured his government's popularity and allowed Georgians to, to actually see uh, what uh, a new and, and, and modernized state could look like, because a lot of those reforms were very tangible. So getting rid of police corruption, uh, reforming business environments. So Georgia has jumped again from somewhere near the end of the global scale for ease of doing business to, I think at the moment, it must be number seven on the World Bank's ease of doing business ranking. So it became became incredibly easy to set up shop, to set up businesses, to, to conduct business activity. Uh, Saakashvili and his party were big deregulators. So back in the day when neoliberalism was the name of the game in Eastern Europe, and still is in some places, but what they did is basically they, they deregulated the economy big time. They got rid of a lot of the leftover Soviet institutions, organizations. They sold a lot of state companies. Uh, they hired a lot of new people. They were big promoters of young staff and decision makers. So it was at the time probably the youngest government in Europe. And this is the energy and the, the, the zeal that was then very popular with Georgians. And it has actually given the country a completely new image. So reducing crime. There was, I think there was a year around 2006 where probably three cars were stolen across the whole Georgia for, for, for the whole year. The same happened to public safety rankings. There was, for a few years, Georgia ranked on, on public safety in the top five in Europe, together with Iceland, Sweden, and Finland. I mean, there are not many rankings in which Georgia ranks together with Sweden and Finland. I mean, if you look at gender equality, there's a huge gap. But when it comes to public safety back then, it, it has really gone so far up. I mean, it was really quite an amazing story back in the day. And to an extent, a lot of these reforms are still bearing fruit and, and Georgians still enjoy the fruit of, of the, the change that took place in early 21st century. And their public safety rankings, their corruption rankings, their uh, business environment is inviolable, hence the whole Ukraine story. Because Which we will come we, on. Yeah, when we call to Ukraine, I can explain. What was his relationship like with Russia? Were they close? Yeah, so when I say that there are a few threads to this story, there's a Georgia thread, there's a Ukraine thread, and there's probably a big Saakashvili thread in all this. So Saakashvili is... First of all, very good in reinventing himself. And he's also a very good man in weaving his own narrative about himself and the reality that surrounds him. So there are some elements of his story that have changed, and there are some elements of his story that remained permanent. And Russia was always the arch enemy, or from the very early days, the arch enemy. I mean, we can have a longer discussion to what extent this was justified and where Russia was really Georgia's chief enemy, but he would always portray it as such. And in the very, very early, early days, he, he, he positioned himself as Georgia's liberator and a fighter against Russia's economic and political domination in Georgia's life. 
So he he ran to be first elected on that note, you know, as an anti-Russian. Yes, sometimes contrary to vital interests of many Georgians. So there was an instance in 2006 when, when, when Saakashvili's relation, I mean, Georgia's relations with Russia were so bad that Russia has basically decided to deport the entire, almost the entire Georgian diaspora out of Russia. And that's probably the biggest Georgian diaspora outside of Georgia. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of people. And because the political relations between Georgia and Russia have gone so bad, then Saakashvili decided to basically cut all the relations and, and, and stop paying gas from its, its energy bills. Russians have basically at some point decided to put a lot of its uh, Georgians on planes and send them back to Tbilisi. So it was a, t- a terrible human tragedy that found its, its, its final at the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg, where, where Russia was found guilty of many human rights violations. But that was many years down the line. Back in the day, around 2005, 2006, it meant that a lot of Georgians, notably those in Russia, have suffered a lot because of his maverick approach to Georgia-Russia relations. On the other hand, what? it has given Georgia a clean break and, and more freedom in, in associating itself with the West, with the US and Europe. How long a border does Russia and Georgia have? You know, how close are they? Because obviously Stalin was famously Georgian, not Russian. You know, there's that big link yep. too. Does Russia feel a lot of ownership of Georgia, more so than maybe Ukraine or... They say they share a few few hundred kilometers of a border. So basically, Georgia is, is Russia's, Russia's southern neighbor, together with Azerbaijan. But that's not it's not really about the border. It goes beyond that. It goes into the history of Georgian-Russian relations and the fact that Georgia was part of the Russian Empire for almost two hundred years, was then uh, an independent state for only three years to be reinvaded by then Soviet Russia and be or to be occupied by the Soviet Union for for seventy years. And the fact that that Russia feels in many ways responsible and very powerful, and it is actually a very powerful actor in this part of the world, it enjoys a very close relationship with Armenia, and Armenia is to Georgia's south, so we can say that uh, Georgia is sandwiched between two allies uh, that work together, so it's not an easy place to be. Uh, Russia does not have territorial claims to Georgia itself, but it has two client entities within Georgia, that's Abkhazia and South Ossetia, uh, that have been officially recognized as independent states by Russia and Venezuela and Syria, so only Russia and its client states, you can say. But they are uh, a thorn in in Georgia's side. They constitute 20% of Georgia's territory. Georgia has absolutely no authority there. They are de facto independent uh, entities and partly recognized because of Russia and a couple of other states recognizing them. So it's not so much about the common border, it's a lot about common history interests, including Russia's military and geopolitical interests in the region. It's quite uh, a maze of conflicts, really. There isn't a single one out there only. But it means that uh, for better and for worse, Georgian-Russian relations are bound to be extremely complicated for years and years to come. There isn't an easy resolution to that. And Saakashvili's view of this was that it was all Russia's fault and that Russia as an occupier and as a rogue state in the region should have no say in Georgia's politics. So he basically decided to cut all ties with Russia starting in 2005 and then 2006. Okay, so why did Saakashvili lose or stop being president? Did he, did he step down or...? 
He did not. He's, he's not a quitter. He never was. Um, so what happened then, there was, if you look at two sides, if you look at supply and demand, so um, first of all, there was uh, quite a high demand for political change. Uh, Georgians grew tired. They have a habit of growing tired of their governments. There's been a few changes of power in, in Georgia, and which, which distinguishes from other countries of, of the region, notably Armenia and Azerbaijan. Um, pause on yep. that. If he was there for 10 yep. years, that's still quite a long time for people to have had some power. That is true, but a, a good argument could be made that he he tried very hard uh, to stay in power, at least for this second term. So basically what, what his party did is they tried to appropriate a lot of the state apparatus and they made sure they win the elections at the right time, including local elections, parliamentary elections, and him winning the presidential election. It, again, it's 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 a it's a bigger debate, but there was a time when his party monopolized power to the extent that the elections might have been free to some extent, but uh, the state would use its resources to coerce state employees to vote in a certain way, for example, and would use certain resources to encourage people to vote in a certain way, obviously supporting the party that's in power. That's not a common story, and it doesn't only apply to Georgia. It's, it's happening in a number of places, and very few parties of power in Georgia were, Im- were immune to this, but that was the reality back then. Sarkozy made sure that he stays in power for quite a moment. Yet he didn't. So what happened? Like, what did he do next? So it's not so much what he did next, but actually what happened is that he he met um, a very worthy opponent. So Bizina Ivanishvili is Georgia's richest man. And well, that's just one fact of, about him. But basically his wealth equals one third of, of, uh, of Georgia's GDP, whereas in most, let's say, Western countries in the UK, you would have you would have billionaires who might be worth a fraction of one percent of the country's GDP, whereas this man worth a third was worth a third of the country. Uh, he was an early supporter of Saakashvili and the biggest benefactor and the biggest charitable donor in, in the history of independent Georgia. At some point, he decided that he will no longer support Saakashvili and he started supporting independent movements, after which he brought them all together and formed his own party called Georgian Dream, Democratic Georgia, and challenged Saakashvili and his party. So one factor was the fact that there was a worthy political opponent and there was a new political force with substantial resources, i.e. the richest man in the country with with huge uh, amounts of money and clout, because he was also a very respected figure back then as, as being the biggest charitable benefactor in the country. On the other hand, Georgians grew tired of Saakashvili's antics. So Georgia-Russia war in 2008, that was very unsuccessful, militarily a very unsuccessful endeavor for Georgia. And in Georgia basically losing any links with its uh, with its Russia-occupied uh, territories of Abkhazia and South Ossetia. That brought, it, brought about an economic crisis. Uh, Georgian economy has slowed down a little bit. What I probably did not mention in much detail is that the, the way that Saakashvili did those reforms focused on the outcome rather than the process. So, you know, when they, when they fired the entire police force, they just made sure that these people are fired quickly without due process necessarily. The same would apply to what they did with the entire justice system. The justice system was was part of the state apparatus. Uh, the sentencing rate for criminal cases in Georgia back in the day was about 99.5%, which means if, if the prosecutors are basically, if the, the state apparatus decided that you might be guilty of a crime, that you could get, you could pretty much guarantee that the court will agree with the prosecution and that you will be either jailed or receive a hefty fine because that was also a thing back in, in, in the day. So the state would extract funds from its citizens 
by means of applying very hefty fines. So what happened that this 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 reform apparatus was efficient, but it was also very very brutal. It was a certain prison scandal which involved uh, leaked tapes of prison torture, basically released out to public that, that probably had tipped the scale back in, in 2012, and Georgians then decided to support the opposition. So this process was was. I mean, or this, this dissatisfaction with Saakashvili's government was growing for a number of years, but it was it was this prison scandal that has probably tipped the scales back then and made Georgia, Georgians vote for another political party that is in power since 2012. So I hate to move you on from Georgia. Yep. But the reason that Saakashvili is back in the news at the moment is because the president of Ukraine, Zelensky, is trying to appoint him to his government. Why? <laughs> You've said that Zakashvili is not a quitter, and I think we have gathered that. But he was also previously trying to get involved in Ukrainian politics. Why did he start moving into Ukraine? And like, how closely linked are Ukraine and Georgia politically for that to happen? To paraphrase what somebody once said about Pushkin, it's, it's very hard to say anything about Saakashvili to someone who doesn't know anything about him. So it, he is not only a politician, he is also a celebrity. I remember your recent your recent podcast about the status of, of a celebrity. It's, it's very often about him, not only the matter at hand, not only the country where he operates. So he achieved a certain celebrity status as a reformer, as a very efficient and effective and ruthless reformer in Georgia. He had a history in Ukraine. He studied in Ukraine. He lived in Ukraine for, I think, over 10 years. He studied together with the man who was about to become Ukraine's president, Petro Poroshenko. So this Poroshenko being elected to to, uh, Ukraine's presidency, that was 2015, that followed Saakashvili's departure from, from, uh, from Georgia in 2013. So you've got a man who is very, who is famous for, uh, for his reform achievements, let's say. Um, sorry, 2014 when Poroshenko was, was elected and 2013 when, when uh, Saakashvili left Georgia. So 2013, Saakashvili uh, loses, or actually, yeah, loses the presidential election and had to leave, uh, has to leave Georgia. He served two terms already, so he couldn't have been re-elected. So he leaves Georgia in 2013. In 2014, his friend Petro Poroshenko is elected president in Ukraine. Saakashvili claims that he was not only invited, he was, uh, he was an active contributor to those processes. He was active in, in, in Ukraine's political revolutions, both of early 2000s and to 2014. When Poroshenko was elected, he decides to appoint Saakashvili governor of Odessa region, which is a region southwest uh, of, of Ukraine, quite an economically and politically important region, and tasks Saakashvili with reforming well, the region at large, but mostly its economy and the corrupt structure that have seized the economic interests in the region and transit around the Black Sea. How did Ukrainians feel about a Georgian being elected to govern them? I and mean, was the thing that linked them basically their anti-Russian stance? Or like, how did the population of Ukraine feel about Saakashvili sort of rocking up and being given a job by his friend? So again, there will be a, there will be a Saakashvili element to this, and the fact that he was seen as an effective, ruthless, and successful reformer in areas where Ukraine felt that they needed reform. Now, Ukraine has a pretty bad track record of reform, and definitely did that in 2014, where where another revolution has 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 led to the previous president 
Yanukovych fleeing to Russia and, and, and there being a, a new presidential election and, and the new um, president being elected. So there is Ukraine with its problems of, of lack of reform and corruption and, and lawlessness. There was a successful politician from Georgia. Yes, definitely an unusual case, somebody coming from another country. But then I think another perspective you can bring into this is, first of all, that it's not an uncommon story in the post-Soviet space. Now, neither Ukraine or Georgia like this label to be applied to them. But I think in this case, it's a uniquely post-Soviet story. So in Ukraine alone, you had a, an economy minister who was Lithuanian, a Georgian health minister, a member of Saakashvili's team, a Georgian uh, deputy interior minister or home, home office minister, a Ukrainian-American finance minister, and I think another uh, Ukrainian-American health minister. So those stories of transnational politicians were not uncommon. So you have a man who was immensely popular um, back then. Then you have to add a few things about the Ukrainian-Georgian relations and the fact that there is a certain romantic myth of Georgia in Ukraine first. That was even before Saakashvili and the elections, a very positive image of the country and its people. And on top of that, especially after 10 years of reform, so back in 2012, 2013, Georgia was seen as the most successful post-Soviet states, except except the Baltic states that were no longer labeled as post-Soviet because they're part of, of NATO and the European Union. So in this post-Soviet space, you have an immense success story of Georgia, a country that's reformed itself, where, as, I mean, popular popular understanding would be that there's basically no crime, no corruption, the state is modern, uh, all the state agencies have reformed themselves. There was a time when in Georgia, I'm not sure if it's still there, where you could actually get a dry, you could, you could, you could get your passport in a, in a, in a drive-through uh, passport office. So you drive in, you pay your thing, you wait a few minutes at the, uh, at the parking lot, and then you get your passport a few minutes later. That was space age stuff in Ukraine and many other post-Soviet countries back in 2012, 2013. So I think that back in the day, I don't remember the, the polls, but I'm quite sure that, 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 that Ukrainians were by and large supportive of the appointment and had no problem with the Georgian being appointed you know, to a regional government post, especially that back then I think the highest uh, political nominee was the health minister. It was a very important brief back in the day. It was a Georgian health minister who used to be health minister in Saakashvili's government. So it was part of a wider trend of a wider HR drive to get Georgians into the Ukrainian government, to get successful reformers to help with Ukraine's reform drive. But Poroshenko eventually chucked him out, didn't he? What happened? Well, you would say that he did. And obviously, Saakashvili's story would probably be that he resigned because he felt that things were not going right. So, so Saakashvili has a, has, a, has a tendency or a good track record of disagreeing with his political friends and allies quite a lot. This happened in Georgia and this also happened in Ukraine. So basically, after a few years uh, in, in, in post, uh, Saakashvili resigns and says that, it's, uh, that the region and the government and, and the structures of the state in Ukraine are so thoroughly corrupt that he is not in a position to, to bring about positive change. And not only that he resigns, but he was then stripped of his uh, Ukrainian citizenship. And we covered this, but Saakashvili did, did apply and did obtain Ukrainian citizenship in the process. Because he has obtained Ukrainian citizenship, he automatically lost his Georgian citizenship. That's the way that the law works in Georgia. Does not allow dual, Georgia does not allow dual citizenship, at least not in such a straightforward process. So he lost his Georgian citizenship. He only had a Ukrainian citizenship when Poroshenko decided that, that Saakashvili is no longer an ally or a friend of his. He somehow discovered that Saakashvili lied on his passport application and decided to revoke his citizenship. So, so Saakashvili was de facto 
stateless mm -hmm. and spent quite a few time holding up in in a, in a place in Warsaw. His uh, wife, Sakashvili's wife, is is Dutch, so he could obtain a, a residence permit for any EU state, and he could reside in Warsaw for quite some time, and he did that. Why has Zelensky brought him back? That is probably the, the biggest mystery, and I think the story is a little too recent for us to know the full story. I think one of the the problems is that uh, Zelensky and his team are in a, in a bit of a pickle or a bit of a crisis. So um, a new prime minister came in, Mr. Danish Michal, came in in March 2020 with his new team without much of a political program. Now, not everybody will agree on this one, but I don't think that there was much of a manifesto attached to the new government and much, not much of an idea how to govern Ukraine. And because the reform processes and the reform agenda is always huge, Ukraine never tires of reform and is always looking for successful reformers. And Saakashvili managed to position himself as something in between a politician and a technocrat and a successful reformer. He was then sought by some of the people within that team and was offered the job. So what statement does this make about Zelensky's view or relationship with Russia? Because what you said, Saakashvili is a loaded figure in some ways. Yep. There must be a statement about how Zelensky and uh, his Ukraine is, is viewing their big neighbour. You have to look back at who Saakashvili is and how he operates and the fact how he can very swiftly change his political allegiance and his political allies. So he used to be friends with, uh, with another... Ukrainian politician uh, before then, Yulia Tymoshenko, who, who uh, was a sworn enemy of, of President Poroshenko. Then he could be friends with Poroshenko for quite a while. Poroshenko was a sworn enemy of, of Zelensky. And initially, Saakashvili, being part of Poroshenko's team, would obviously not welcome any association with Zelensky. Now, when Zelensky offered him the, the post, he was only too eager to, to at least agree. He was eventually not nominated, and we know he will not be Deputy Prime Minister of Ukraine. But he agreed to this. So I think it's, it mostly boils down to Sakashvili being a smooth political operator and, and, and not minding much who, where the offer comes from. Because if you look at, at Zelensky's credential, he is very often to, uh, accused of being Russia's stooge or at least being too soft on, on Russia. Poroshenko at least was not that. So Sakashvili could claim he could be Poroshenko's man because Poroshenko is, is fiercely anti-Russian. When Poroshenko de facto fired Saakashvili, or Saakashvili resigned and was no longer Poroshenko's man, Saakashvili went on a tirade of how Poroshenko is, is basically implementing Putin's orders. He didn't go as far as to say that, that, that Poroshenko is, is Putin's man, but he said that their, their interests align and that what Poroshenko is doing is basically helping Putin. Last question. Do you think Ukrainians would have been lucky to have Saakashvili? You rate him as a political figure. Is his experience useful, or do you just think he's a meddler that needs to go off? Well, if you want a very short answer, I would say no. If I could, again, give you a few perspectives, I think that there, you know, his skills uh, could have some value in Ukraine. He did offer to help with uh, Ukraine's negotiations with the International Monetary Fund. He did mention that he could help with, with the Ukraine's business reform. I think if you were to identify a narrow brief where he has a proven track record of success and business reform would be one such thing, and um, negotiations with international 
financial organizations and international donors. He was incredibly successful in his uh, donor fundraising drive after the 2008 Georgia-Russia war. So if you were to identify a more narrow, specific portfolio and there could be appropriate political oversight, so he could be a deputy or, or uh, an advisor to someone, then I think he could he could contribute to what Ukraine wants to achieve. I don't think putting him in, in, a, in a high political post would achieve much for Ukraine, no. Okay, I actually have one last question. How old is he now? How old is Sakashvili currently? He was born in 1967, so could we quickly do the maths? Yeah, so what, he's uh, 60s? Yeah, so he's still got a bit of a, potentially a bit of a career to go. What do you yeah. think next? Uh, well, that's, I think looking at Sakashvili and, and the, at his immense potential to reinvent himself, I couldn't possibly say that he is... He, he did, at least until recently, have a, a, an academic position within one of the U.S. universities. He did uh, appear in a, a number on an, at a number of international conferences as keynote speaker. So I cannot possibly say what is the most likely career path for him, but I am quite sure we have not seen the last of Saakashvili. And as he very often says, you know, I will come back, and he usually does. So I'm quite sure we'll see more of Sakasvili's in, in the upcoming future. I think he's already committed himself to Ukraine to an extent that we will have to see more of him in Ukraine rather than in another country. That's where his immediate future lies. Well, Dr. Max Frass, thank you so much. Hello, Max Frass on Twitter. Max Frass. Um, thank you so much for coming on and explaining quite a complicated Eastern European connection conundrum. So yeah, thank you, Max. Thank you, Agnes. Well, that was such an interesting diversion into the world of, of Eastern European politics. Thank you so much, Agnes. Thank well, you. thank you so much, Max Frass, for coming on. And finally, he might stop having a go at both of us separately for not just having anything on about Georgia on the podcast. So fingers crossed. Yes, it's, it's a dangerous it's a dangerous game to play, isn't it? When you keep recommending topics, there's a distinct possibility we will ask you to actually come and talk about them. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> if you think there's a gap, which there probably is, then we are probably going to call you up and say, well, come on then, come and tell us all about it. The precedent has been set. <laughs> That's it for this week. Yeah, but we'll be back next week with some really exciting interviews. We've got some great people lined up. And if you want to stick around for a bit of the Dawn Chorus, please do. <laughs> but in the meantime... I'm Ben Horton. I'm Agnes Frimston, and you've been listening to Undercurrents. <laughs>